As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the Archives of Unbelievable. Today, we're continuing our classic replay from January 2015 in the second part of Whether Christianity Passes the Outsider Test. In a continuation of last week's show, David Marshall and John Loftus continue to debate whether Christianity is rationally tenable and unique among world religions. David Marshall, author of Why Jesus Passes the Outsider Test, argues that Christianity uniquely fulfills the hopes and desires of all religious searching. So let's join our guests for part two of this classic replay. So today on the programme, it's part two of a discussion that began last week on whether Christianity passes the outsider test for faith. Now, when it comes to the marketplace of religions in the world, uh, you could ask uh, what makes Christianity unique? And uh, if you were an outsider and were simply deciding on which religion is true, uh, would you be able to pick Christianity out of the many on offer? Uh, Would you have any reason to do so? Or would you reject them all as uh, not having enough evidence, enough uh, evidential basis to to actually choose one? Uh, John Loftus is an ex-Christian who has essentially made that case in different ways in a number of books and website articles. And he He's often in in conversation, in dialogue, and in sometimes a heated kind of uh, interactions online uh, with uh, his critics. Uh, One of them is David Marshall. He joins us again today as well. Uh, David works out in China. He's a Christian author and thinker. His new book, How Christianity Passes the Outsider Test, which he spoke to us about last week, is a response to John Loftus. It claims to show that Christianity is unique among world religions in four ways. In answering God's promises to Abraham and changing the world, along the way. Uh, I suppose you could say the success of Christianity is itself a factor of why it passes this so-called outsider test for faith that it is true. Um, Well, we talked to some extent about that last week, and um, we want to continue to talk about one of the other aspects in which David believes it passes the outsider test for faith today, in as much as he believes it fulfills the deepest truths in many world traditions. And perhaps we could also talk a, a little bit about the the impact of Christianity, whether it has had this extraordinary, um, if you like, global impact for good that David claims, or whether the, the results are a lot more varied, as, as John would suggest, in terms of its, uh, its efficacy around the world. So it's a pleasure to welcome you both back onto the programme, gentlemen. We won't go through as many introductions as last week. I'll invite listeners who perhaps didn't hear the first part to to go to the website and to, to listen to part one at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable um we'll come start with you again though david and, and thanks for coming back for for today's program you work in china so so you believe that, that christianity has can speak into other religions uh, and, and so on and it fulfills at some level the the aims and aspirations of them that's a big claim to make and what what makes you say that and how does it apply to this this issue of whether christianity passes the outsider test for faith well um this has really been my life for the last 30 years is exploring this. I, I guess I first noticed it actually 31 years ago, almost 30 years ago, when I went to the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. Uh, and for the first time, I, you know, as a, as a young man, uh, not knowing a whole lot about Chinese culture and expecting something very strange and different, I went to the Temple of Heaven and I had an experience there uh, seeing things in the Temple of Heaven, which is the greatest of all, but most important, most beautiful of all the ancient Chinese buildings really in some ways very symbol of Chinese culture almost and this was the place where the emperor would come once a year and he would sacrifice to the supreme god who was called Huang Tian Shan Di this the august heavenly god above and uh, I didn't know anything about China at the time very much I didn't know very much about this 
this ceremony, but it struck me that uh, there are several things about this great building in Beijing that struck me as being very f- strangely familiar. And uh, I uh, looked, I looked into it more, and I found out more. And it almost—I I won't give you the whole the whole story right now, which is a little, would take a little bit of time. But it almost seemed as if on that night, that July afternoon, as if God was speaking to me and saying, "Do you think I just came here with the Western missionaries?" Mm. I didn't come here with the Western missionaries. I've been here all along. I made China. And ever since then, I've been researching not only Chinese culture, but other other traditions as well. And I found thing after thing, item after item, at the very heart, the very heart of Chinese and other other cultures that pointed in some way to uh, this inside faith, the faith that I'd grown up with naively. And by adventuring, by, by going out of Western civilization, I found things that actually point me back to Christ. I, I remember, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said when he studied the ancient religions of the Greeks and, and the, the pagan religions that Christianity you know, grew up as part of, he, he believed that Christianity, as, as it were, was the, um, the true myth and that all other religions which had their stories of, of gods and so on, at some level were waiting for Christianity to fulfill them. I mean, is, is this kind of where you're coming from with this view? I, I grew up, yes, I grew up on C.S. Lewis. And one of the exciting things with this book was to look back at some of the very concepts that Lewis and Chesterton and George MacDonald were looking at in, in uh, the Viking culture and in, in the, in the, uh, in the, the uh, poetic Edda uh, and some of the stories that they were looking at that, that really struck them and that, that moved them towards Christ. Well, look, we, we, we'll, we'll see what John Loftus has to say about this. Um, and, and I'm sure he'll have lots to say on whether this does in any way impact his thesis that Christianity is not rationally justifiable if you pass, if, if you put it through the outsider test for faith. And, and we, we heard obviously last week, John, uh, what that outsider test for faith is fundamentally. It's, it's a fairly simple principle. The idea that if you were to, um, if you like, look into and and uh, criticize and, and uh, look at, examine the beliefs of Christianity as skeptically as a Christian would other belief systems, they, they would have as little reason for believing it as they do other belief systems. And um, I mean, we talked about some of the reasons why, why David disagrees with you. This particular one, I guess, is, is one that is a little bit more left field from, from you know, what you've looked into, the, the idea that Christianity itself is somehow prefigured and fulfills at some level the religious longings and traditions from around the world. Um, do you have any sympathy for that view? Well, you know, I don't know that much about uh, Chinese religion. I, uh, I almost took a class on Chinese philosophy, but I passed. <laughs> I should have taken it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'm really not uh, one to, to comment on that, but I will say that uh, it would appear to me that, uh, I suppose, if you went to a different culture... You could probably find things that were akin to your own faith, whatever that faith is. I think it could be explainable, and I'm not an expert on this, he, uh, David Marshall was. Uh, I think it would be explainable as, uh, as one would read a horoscope. Now, if you really believed that the daily horoscope was about you, then you would find ways that um, it would apply. So, no, I, I don't find any merit to it, uh, barring further study. However, I will say that... And the, the fact that, um, you know, these experiences that you know, David has and others have had that came to different um, conclusions and with different gods and different assumptions and different scriptures. So I, I don't give much credence to subjective private experiences. I mean, uh, maybe he did have that, and maybe it was ver- veridical. Uh, I have not, and... Uh, I would have to say billions of people have not. So you can't convince any of us based on that. I mean, one of your prime contentions with the outsider test of faith is that religions are fundamentally contradict each other as well, isn't it? So that they can't at any level all be true, if you you know what I mean. The only thing that all religion uh, accepts is that there's there's supernatural forces and beings that exist. I mean, that's, that's the one thing they all agree on. And, uh, you know, people have believed that, uh, you know, ever since, uh, you know, we evolved into Homo sapiens uh, because we inherited it from our um, animal predecessors. It's called agency detec- detection. 
uh, where so it, effectively survive. supernatural belief you you believe is a sort of byproduct of our evolutionary history, but but one we're learning to get rid of. Yeah, like uh, you know, a, a deer that you know where, where it began to sprinkle uh, would see sprinkles in the you know, in the lake or river uh, or the lake would. Uh, be put on alert that there could be, you know, a crocodile and laying beneath the water, or, or a tire would, would uh, be in in the, in the area. So it'd uh, be alert and probably take off uh, because it saw or it thought it saw uh, agents there that could uh, do them harm. And so then when we, you know, evolved into Homo sapiens, uh, we we saw lightning and thunderstorms and. We wrote all kinds of things and believed all kinds of things about those that uh, the gods were angry or happy, and an eclipse was bad. Usually, mm. sacrificed mm. a lot of people. Uh, it's the same kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, a few few things to potentially talk about there. Um, first, firstly, I think maybe worth saying at the outset, David, that um, as far as John's concerned, and he doesn't claim to be a scholar on this, but he can easily see how one could find areas of of correlation between different religions but it's a bit like looking at your horoscope and if you're a convinced believer in the value of a horoscope you will find ways in which it seems to uh yeah match up with what happened in your week and so on is the same thing going on when you look at other religions and how christianity seems to intersect with them well it's certainly a possibility but let me let me mention something here first um john's gig is basically debunking christianity uh and so the idea of the outsider test for faith is hey they all disagree so there's only a very small chance that any one of them is right. But here we find that all religions are agreeing about something, and they're still all wrong, and, and atheism is still right somehow. Uh, in so, as much as the thing they do agree about is simply uh, a supernatural creator. Right, right. And and the fact is, Pascal Boyer, I think, is probably the source on the, on the agency detective the detection thing. There's a few, people, few writers who have talked about that. I think they're missing a big part of the picture. And the big part of the picture is people experience... It's the supernatural. Mm-hmm. If you if you survey a group of people, you'll find that a large percentage of them have had direct experience of something happening in their lives. Now, uh, so that doesn't is really explained by by John's theory just now. Now, as for the point about um, about the possibility that we're just being subjective and we're picking things out that we like and looking at our hor- horoscope, there is a possibility, and that's why. What I try to do is I try to concentrate on the very central ideas in the civilization, the very most important spiritual ideas, and some very central thinkers as well. So these are two ways of filtering, you know, as it, going back to Aristotle again, the, uh, the old, the wise, and the skillful, looking at these ideas not from the perspective of just, you know, reading your horoscope, but really being careful about them and looking at things that are central and very important. Uh, so what John is saying, there's an element of truth to it, and you really have to be careful about that. I mean, g- but if you find things that are... Yeah, give hmm. us an example. I'd be interested in hearing maybe just one of, of the, the, the... Well, the, the Temple of Heaven is mm-hmm. is the most famous building yeah. in China, in, in ancient, ancient building. This is where once a year the emperor would come to... Normally, all the other gods were considered to be underneath the emperor, and they were his servants. But this god was above all the emperors, and he would come just like the high priest in ancient Israel once a year sacrificing for all the people, even sacrificing some of the very same animals. And some of the symbolism uh, is very similar to, uh, it, it points directly at Jesus in the Gospels. Mm. And, and, uh, and then again, you look at, for example, the Rig Veda in ancient, in ancient India. This was the central, this was the one that the high priest would say, this is the center of our civilization. What is the Rig Veda talking about? Over and over and over again, it's talking about sacrifice and the importance of sacrifice. And that even the high god, Prajapati, is going to sacrifice, had sacrificed himself to renew the universe. That's the central idea. It's not something you can it, take your it, eyes it's off. It's an of. interesting way in which, obviously, all the so many religions then, John, have, have this central idea of sacrifice and so on. Christianity, perhaps unique among them in, in believing that God himself made the sacrifice and, and that that somehow atones in a way that no individual sacrifice in a temple can historical. do. Yeah, well, I'm, go go ahead, John. I'm I'm pretty sure every religion can claim to have some unique doctrines and dogmas to it. That doesn't make it true just because it's unique. It does share, however, the idea of sacrifice, which um, Incas, 
you know, and uh, lots of lots of different cultures, uh, you know, accepted and adopted, which you know, to me, it's, you know, is just primitive nonsense. Uh, and point in fact is that there really is no coherent way of justifying how um, someone needs to be punished in order for uh, that person to be forgiven. I think there's no correlation, no re- relationship at all between punishing someone and forgiving them. Like, well, well, I mean, do, do, you have a, do, do you have a kind of um, a working hypothesis on why so many religions do seem to have this, this focus on sacrifice? If, and would it be a, I don't know, would it have some kind of evolutionary explanation in the way that you believe agency detection so is, there, is responsible there, for supernatural beliefs? There may, there may be uh, some. I don't know that I've uh, found any. I, I do think that um, uh, if uh, you believe that the gods were angry at you, and with an eclipse as a sign, and who interprets those but the priests and the prophets of the given culture, then they're going to they're going to find some way to remedy that. And uh, so, uh, for some cultures, like in um, in India, they have these massive. I know one or two temples that they're just uh, orgies. I mean, they have they have sculptures of voluptuous women and, and men in sexual uh, contact all over the temple. Mm-hmm. And for them, it was um, this is what we're going to do in order to um, uh, get the get the rains to fall on our crops. We're going to have orgies, and uh, these sculptures were better than anything the Renaissance produced, or at least this is good. Uh, and uh, that was their response to, to um, you know, a faltering crop. You know, let's have an orgy, and maybe we'll get the gods to uh, join in with us, and their semen will fall to the earth and water, you know, the, the earth. So um, there's different responses to sure. the divine, and they, they were... But, but as, as far as you're concerned, it, it all falls under this, um, well, primitive nonsense is the way you, you called it, and... and so, that, yes. so, so, okay, David. It's all primitive nonsense. We, we, there probably is an explanation about why sacrifice seems to crop up a lot. But, but at the end of the day, as far as you're, he's concerned, Christianity and its focus on sacrifice, whether that is fulfilled somehow in Jesus Christ, is 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 just carrying on what what we should be dispensing with, if ultimately. Well, this is why secular humanism does not pass the outsider test for faith when it comes to Mars Hill and says, hey, this is all primitive nonsense. That's a little different from St. Paul's approach, and it's a little different from the gospel's approach. Yes, there's evil in every culture. There's, there's sin in every human heart. But there's also some truth there at the heart of that culture. And yes, you're talking about Prajapati sacrificing himself for the world before the, there's nothing historical about it. But it points to something. It points to, to a greater truth. And that truth is not just nonsense because we, in our hearts to this day, we understand what sacrifice means. It's sub- subjugated by our modernization, but we still know in our hearts that there's that sacrifice is a very important thing. Sacrificing for our children, for sacrificing for our nations. Gandhi was a very good example of that. Our heroes are still people who sacrifice themselves for the good of people. What? What? what let's allow uh, John. The firemen on 9/11 sacrificed themselves for the people. So this is a, something at the heart of human nature. It's not nonsense. John? Well, um, you've you got to think about the death of Jesus. I mean, he didn't, uh, he didn't die um, uh, for any good reason, because uh, uh, in order to forgive us, all God had to do was say, okay, you're forgiven. I mean, there's no reason for... for let's, let's say, for instance, I do something wrong, and uh, David says, okay, I won't forgive you until I give you 50 lashes, um, like um, an atheist blogger just received over in um, Saudi Arabia this week. Um, no, that, that has nothing to do with forgiveness at all. You either forgive or not, and to forgive means bearing the pain of whatever I did wrong to you uh, without recompense. That's what forgiveness is. Now, your God apparently decides that, no, 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 I won't forgive unless I punish. And that's just reprehensible. There's no, there's no way that uh, you can ethically justify vengeance for forgiveness. And so when you look at these sorts of atonement theories that uh, have come down the pike and that no Christian really agrees with all of them, or um, they're, they're still disputed, I mean, there's, until you can make sense of that sacrifice, then, yeah, it's superstitious nonsense. Uh, I mean, okay. Can you make sense of the atonement? Does, does Christianity make better sense of of sacrifice and atonement than than other belief systems? In your view, David? 
Well, um, of, of course, I think that uh, that this, the death of Jesus on the cross, we're talking about crucifixion. Crucifixion is not a pretty thing. Christianity didn't come and say, hey, crucifixion is a good thing. We're affirming crucifixion. It's a nice thing that Romans take people and nail them on sticks of wood. That's not what Christianity says, but it says, here's something evil at the heart of your culture, and I'm going to turn this evil into something good. And uh, I would contend that that's what the gospel does. It takes evil and turns it into good. I tend to look at it more as a historian or anthropologist than, than John, who tends to be more of a theologian and may now a, a theologian. In a sense, as a theologian, John has leveled this criticism that he can't see why God couldn't just say, I forgive, rather than having to go through this thing of, you know, Jesus on the cross uh, being punished, taking our sins on us. Why couldn't God have sort of cut out the middleman, as it were, and just said, I forgive you? I really can't can't read God's mind, and I wouldn't want to try, (laughs) but I think it works for human beings. Like, that's probably all that I can say. It works for human beings. John? It works. We We need it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I mean, yeah, do whatever it works. I mean, the question is whether there's evidence for it. I mean, there's a lot of things that might work in the relationships uh, with people. I mean, Charles Manson could be considered to have done something that worked. Um, but uh, was there evidence for what he claimed? And likewise, was there evidence for what Jesus claimed? I'm not necessarily comparing the two. Uh, but um, um, I do want to mention this if I may Go ahead. kind of tag, tag on that. Uh, David mentions on page 7 of his book that my next book is going to be Jesus is a Moral Monster. And he says that as a sort of derogatory uh, comment. Um, I don't know whether I'm going to write that or not. But uh, Jesus would could be considered a moral monster if we um, really believed the second person of the Trinity was incarnate in him. And that means uh, this Old Testament Yahweh, who um, did all these barbaric things uh, in the Old Testament, including genocide. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Child sacrifice, slavery, um, was approved of by Jesus. So I find it interesting that the title to David Marshall's book is not how Christianity passes the outsider test for faith, but how Jesus passes the outsider test for faith, because he wants to focus on Jesus. And um, I wonder if this is what he meant, because there's Paul. And there's um, all kinds of, um, you know, there's, there's the, the, the Israelites, uh, there's the um, um, massacres of the Amalekites, you know, and, and so, sort of things like that, child sacrifice. Is he trying to just focus on Jesus? Because that would be a, um, a misunderstanding of the whole text of the Bible. Okay, well, that, that throws us into a whole other arena of, of Old Testament and, and the God's, God's actions, apparently, in, in Old Testament passages and so on. But do, do you want to, yeah, pick this one up, David, and, and see where we go? Sure. Um, first of all, Jesus is a shorter word than Christianity, which is an advantage. Secondly, an uh, Indian theologian named Ivan Satyavrata recommended that I change the title for the Indian market, so that's what I, that's what I did. Um, as far as, maybe I should explain a little bit more about what I mean by saying that it works for human beings, the, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, 
Um, Lao Tzu, the great Chinese philosopher, talked about uh, the, the sage being someone who would who would uh, die for the people, for the sins of the people. And I think this is something fundamental to human beings. What we know about God, God is out there somewhere. He's the creator of heaven. The Chinese word for, for God in, in ancient China was tian or, or the sky almost. And he seems distant and far away. But when this God who is distant and far away shows that he loves us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he shows that he loves us by dying on the cross. That, chan- that transforms our world. Now, whether God needs to do it this way or why he did it that way, I don't know. But it, I know it transforms our world. It changes, shakes us up and changes the whole world for us. What, what, God is not a distant God, but he's a God of love who is willing mm-hmm. to die on the cross for us. I mean, he, he references the fact that you, you pick up on his, well, we don't know if it will or will not be written, but, but a book on Jesus as a moral monster. And, and um, But yeah, as far as John's concerned, if, if Jesus is the Yahweh incarnate, then um, Yahweh's responsible for some terrible things in, in you know, Old Testament history. What, a, any quick response? Uh, we can't devote uh, <laughs> the rest of the program to, to, to going that. But, but this is, again, very common sort of objection to, to Christianity in terms of it, its history and so on. Honestly, I think John is, is uh, I don't want to be what they say, pat the horse's bottom here, but I think John is actually smarter than some of his writers because he takes this theological approach. Um, Jesus obviously was no moral monster. You can see what Jesus was like from the Gospels. And his friend, Hector Avalos, who's a religious studies professor at Iowa State University, tries to depict Jesus as, as saying that we should hate our, hate our parents and stuff like that. And he was really just as much hate about hate as he was about love. Well, we can see what Jesus was like from the Gospels. Um, that's an empirical, I'm an empiricist. Who is Jesus? We look at the Gospels, Gospels and we find out who Jesus was. And through Jesus, if Jesus was the Son of God, we find out what God is like. Okay. Well, look, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there for the moment and we'll, we'll come back uh, in the second part of today's program as we continue this debate. My two guests today, John Loftus, he's a, an ex-Christian, now an atheist. Uh, online, he is well known for his works that, uh, in which he claims to be able to debunk the Christian faith. The outsider test of faith is one of those uh, ways in which he's uh, been shown to do that. David Marshall responding today as our Christian guest uh, and his new book on uh, why Jesus passes the outsider test uh, is, uh, is uh, a response essentially to this. And we'll be continuing uh, in the final part of today's program. Um, John, this outsider test of faith, which we've spent a couple of programmes devoted to to looking at and whether Christianity passes it, um, I mean, do you do you feel like it's being engaged with satisfactorily? Um, are people taking it seriously as far as you're concerned um, when it comes to w- the way they, they look at faith and so on? Well, I think David Marshall is, and, uh, you know, my hat's off to them. <laughs> he comments about my hat uh, quite a bit, so uh, I take my hat to him off. Um, I, I do appreciate him for that. He developed a whole book to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, some other scholars have um, likewise uh, looked at it. Uh, I think most of the ones that have looked at it have rejected it. So, uh, and, um, so, so I'm appreciative of, of David uh, mm. for that. And so, uh, yes, they are taking it seriously. Uh, it's interesting that Christians can't agree. Uh, but um, I'll put uh, David in my camp for now. <laughs> okay. Even, even though we, we have, even though we have disagreements about uh, about uh, how it uh, pans out, I mean, sure. I don't think that he's taking it seriously enough. Uh, but he does take it more mm. seriously than mm. others. And when it comes to to the, the, the historically the fertility and the the nature, the way that Christianity has grown and and you know become a world religion. Um, David obviously has made the case that in, in all kinds of ways, that itself is evidence for why it fulfills the outsider test for faith, that it has been adopted across so many cultures and boundaries, that it does, as far as he's concerned, um, have all kinds of um, talking points to the other religions and, and at some level fulfills the needs and aspirations of those religions. Uh, for you, I mean, you often, when, when he talks in those ways, say, yeah, but none of that makes it true. Um, well, even... Even uh, David Marshall himself, on page 176 in his book, he mentions some of the things that need to be dealt with before uh, someone can conclude that uh, Christianity is true. And one sentence I'll read, he says, I freely confess that arguments here 
would be less persuasive if there were no independent reasons to believe God does act in the world and that the Bible, the biblical account of Jesus is credible. So he, he's saying, you know, that, um, that these things wouldn't have as much credibility to them if there were no independent evidence. So uh, even even he admits that the kinds of things in his book that he mentions are dependent on the evidence for other things. Sure. Uh, so, so David, what, what is it you're trying to do with this book then? Uh, are, are you kind of just taking Christianity as a movement and saying it passes, or, or do we have to also have good objective evidence for the reliability of Scripture, the life of Jesus, his resurrection, and so on? Well, as I said, this is an old argument, um, and I think that what we're all looking for is we're looking for a way of understanding life in the, in the big picture of life. Um, I can't remember the guy's name right now, famous uh, scholar of religions uh, who was British. Uh, he said that, you know, whichever belief system ties it all together and, and gives you a big picture of, of reality of all the different religions and adopts insights from the different truth, truths in different religions, that is more likely to be true. So the outsider test for faith is not a knock dead sort of argument. It's not a, it's not a full stop complete uh, proof, but it's something to take into account. It's something very, very interesting. And it's also a very interesting way to look at the history of religions and to see, you know, how is it that Christianity became to spread around the world to people in different cultures? And what about, you know, what John himself believes or or doesn't believe? And, and I'll let John come back as, as to whether he, he would class it as a belief, atheism and, and so on. But do do atheists have to run their own worldview through the outsider test of faith as far as, far as you're concerned? Yes, I think I said that earlier. And, and there's not just one worldview because it's better to compare, I think, Christianity to a developed atheistic worldview like secular humanism or communism rather than atheism per se. Because Christianity does not just say God exists, but God exists plus. Mm. And secular humanism does not just say God does not exist, but God does not exist plus. So it's best to compare Christianity and secular humanism. Mm. Okay. Uh, John, um, do, do you think that, that, that you, you also have to put your worldview to the test in this way? Well, you know, what the outsider's test for faith is doing is it's taking something that Christians already do, and that is, they look at other religions uh, through the lens of, um, well, sufficient evidence. Uh, that is, if they're rational, that is, if they're informed, they're, they're looking at these other religions through the lens of does it or does it not have sufficient evidence for it. Uh, and what I'm doing is I'm taking that and I'm saying, okay, now let's apply it to, you know, all religions, you know, all faiths, uh, all positions, if you will. I'll, I'll admit that. Um, and the word, where do we get this evidence? Where, where does this evidence come from? It's a way to get believers to do something that most atheists already do. Um, not all, uh, but most atheists uh, already do. And it's, it's a, they look at the evidence. They're looking at and, and they look to science for that kind of evidence. So usually we're already there. We're already non-believers. We're already looking critically as outsiders to these other religions, and we're asking, a lot of us are searching, I'm still searching, not as much as I used to, of course, I've, I've uh, had 60 years of this uh, stuff, um, but um, we're looking for evidence that one religion is true over the other, we're looking for evidence that, um, you know, somebody actually did raise somebody from the dead in Africa, which, uh, you know, it's claimed, we're, we're looking for evidence that Benny Hinn actually does miracles, we're looking for evidence that prayer uh, does actually work, we're looking for evidence of the biblical accounts of this, that, and the others, the Shroud of Turin, and things like that. And we're just not finding it, you see, because what we're doing, what I'm doing with the test, is we're trying to find a way to know what's true. And um, the only way to get uh, some people to accept it is to point out the, the double standards. Hey, mm. we've been doing something uh, wrong. We've not uh, applied the golden rule test for faith, if you will to our own faith and ask it for sufficient evidence. It's about time we do that. Because we find that Mormons, even in the face of DNA evidence that shows that uh, Native Americans are not descendants of Semitic peoples from um, the Middle East, that they continue to believe. Now, why is that? How, how can they continue to believe when they have irrefutable proof, disproof of their religion? Well, then, we, we ama we're amazed at that, all of us. But then why is it that people continue to believe, even though oh, there's a lot of evidence uh, that uh, is not there, that David claims is there, and a lot of evidence against what he, what he believes? And so 
The outsider test of faith is just leveling the playing field. It's asking us to look for sufficient evidence because we are so easily deceived. I mean, do, do you believe, do you, do you concur that we are easily deceived and in a sense will hold, I suppose, to our beliefs in, in the face of contrary evidence, David? Who is this we? I mean, I, I, I find I find atheists as pig-headed. And, and anybody can look on my website, com and John's website and, you know, see who is more obsessed about defending their position, him or me. Uh, I think it's probably him. Uh, he's got a stake in the game. We've all got stakes in the game. And I don't think there's anybody objective. Eighty percent of the atheists in the world were brainwashed into atheism, frankly. And a lot of them, most of them are here in China. Uh, a lot of them are in Western countries, too. We can't say that, hey, it's just you guys that need to get your act together and start being objective. Everybody's in the same boat in that regard. We're all subjective. We all have a search and a desire for truth, beauty, and goodness. Uh, let's let's not pretend that one group of people is perfectly objective and the other group is, you know, completely subjective. John? I as for miracles, for miracles, we're all in the same boat. We all tend to, you know, want to believe that which we prefer to believe. And uh, so that's why the outsider test for faith is, is called for in the first place. It helps us all step outside. Let's say an atheist is raised in Sweden to uh, to, uh, to be an atheist. Uh, it's a call for the, that atheist to look for sufficient evidence for, um, for you know, the truth. And that, that's all it does. And uh, there are a lot of atheists who are not scientifically literate. And uh, it's, it's a call for them to be scientifically illiterate, as it is a call for believers to be scientifically illiterate, that there's no double standard. But, but in and, a sense, uh, what David's saying is you, you've got a, yeah, a stake in the game. You uh, have a perspective that you're going to fight for tooth and nail john um and that maybe you know it's not as well, it's yeah. very hard to be I, obje- as objective as you say you need to be with this uh, outsider test sh- for faith i sure do i sure have a stake in the game i i do think that the evidence does not favor christianity but uh, i the stake that i have uh, driven in the ground is the fact that we need sufficient evidence that's it and i don't see how that yeah, can be right. Uh, objected to. I mean, what, what, the question I ask nobody, nobody objects to that, is what's the alternative, given the fact that we are so easily deceived by our cultures, easily deceived by our brain, uh, easily so deceived by mm. uh, our parents. Uh, we we yeah. have to search for sufficient evidence and, and be brutally honest with, with the result. I mean, I mean, David's talked about the fact that in his experience in China, there, there's been this move away from the, the sort of cultural atheism that, as it were, was was state enforced towards um, an openness to Christianity, and we we know that statistics bear that out in terms of the the way Christianity is on the rise in China and has been for decades. But for you, from your perspective, that's kind of what's going on there, John. Why are people adopting something that you think, if if only they looked at it rationally and objectively, they would they would reject? Um, what, what's what's the reason for people uh, in parts of the world today? you know, buying into Christianity in such large numbers? Oh, there's a multifaceted number of reasons. David might uh, be able to tell us more about that than uh, than myself, because he's there. But uh, I just don't see the evidence for Christianity, and I've studied it for uh, a a lot of years. I've studied the Bible, I've studied theology, I've studied apologetics, I've read the best of the best, I've studied philosophy, philosophy of religion. And um, I can say quite confidently that uh, Christianity is a, you know, bare superstition, uh, and uh, has no merit, and it's uh, uh, harmful. Now, um, why people might come to different conclusions could be multifaceted, but the thing is, uh, they need to look for sufficient evidence, and uh, they will claim uh, they have sufficient evidence. I know they will, Mm. but if they, so I can't necessarily trust what the, what they say. David says he has sufficient evidence. Well, sure. why should I have to? Let's, let's we're put we're, it we're all table. claiming to, to 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 be doing the best with the facts we've got in front of us. David, China again. I'd like to come back to this as we start to close up things. But you you, I mean, you're, you're what the bang you've been drumming over the last show and uh, and so on has been that it's more than just objective evidence. It's about the way it fulfills all kinds of different areas of a person's life that, that accounts for why Christianity 
has been on the on the rise in in China and other parts of the world. So, what's what's Dave? What's John missing here when he he says, as far as I'm concerned, I've read all the books and none of the arguments have convinced me, and it's all it's all a you know a surgeon and a, and a fabrication. What 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 makes you see things so differently? Well, I don't think he has read all the books, and I don't think he's objective when he does. I think there's plenty of evidence for the Christian faith. Um, on miracles, Craig Keener and a new book by Eric Metaxas, which I read on the airplane coming over here, is very good. Um, but evidence comes in different kinds. And uh, going back to Aristotle again, there's scientific direct evidence that we see we can personally directly investigate, and I'm all for that. I've done some of that writing, written some about that in some of my other books and other articles. Um, but there's also indirect evidence, and uh, some of the evidences that I'm talking about here are kind of new forms, new ways of evidence that most people won't be familiar with. For me, it's a, a very exciting uh, subject. Um, most people, a lot of Christians think that, hey, world religions, a scary topic, because a lot of the atheists around us bring up world religions when we talk about why Christianity is true and, and why should Christianity be true and all these other religions false. Um, but actually, I think it's you, you learn so much when you study the world of religions. And uh, in, my, in my experience, 30 years of studying world religions has actually strengthened my faith in Christianity. Uh, and not in a way necessarily that undermines or despises anything good in other cultures. And, and, and again, not in a way that's naive and just accepts everything either. I mean, well, one of John's contentions and, and the contention of the outsider test of faith is that the different world religions are fundamentally contradictory to each other. So that the chances of one of them being true, you know, is is therefore just made that much lower. But from what you're saying, you're saying, is that overlooking then the ways in which they do look the same at some level? Um, and it, it, and, and it, where's the danger here? It, it, some Christians, I can imagine, getting a little bit wary of, of, well, are you just saying it's just a case of pluralism? We're, we're all kind of heading to no. the same place and, and, you know, we don't need to worry about the distinctives of Christianity? No, and, and one of the uh, in, in my my uh, dissertation, one of the things I talk about is there's six elements of fulfillment, and one of them is dialectic, because in every when Paul was in Athens, you know he he drew, he drew he called people to repent of their sins. When Jesus was walking in Galilee, he called people to repent of their sins, not only their personal sins but the systematic sins of their culture and time. And every religion uh, is wrong as well as right. Every non-Christian religion. There's areas of deep error and, 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 and sin in every culture, including Christian cultures. So, no, we shouldn't be naive. That's, that's, uh, that's a very important part of, of what fulfillment means. But there is truth, too, and those truths tend to point um, not to an abstract belief system or some philosophy that people have made up, but to Jesus walking in Galilee, uh, come to, uh, as the old song goes, the little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and dreams of all the years, hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I think Jesus is where is really the heart and soul of the human experience and really makes sense of human history in a new way. Mm. For me, that's a very exciting story. Sure. Uh, And in that level, John, what what David is describing is is quite a big kind of narrative view of, of the way somehow Jesus in his story and in, in, in what he did fulfills the hopes and fears of all kinds of people. I mean, I guess as an atheist, you, you just don't see that that's, that there is this kind of a narrative going on in history that, that at the end of the day, what happens happens and, and it just happens for, you know, not for any directed reasons. I mean, do you have hope or a belief that atheism will, as it were, one day become the predominant belief system because more people will take the outsider test of faith and, and, believe that, that the religion that they had been brought up in doesn't pass it and so on? Or, or, or is that not, not in any way necessarily a, an outcome in the end? It, it could be that atheism itself dies out one day. What, what's your thoughts on that? I hope atheism doesn't die out someday, but I don't think it's going to dominate for, uh, for any time soon. Um, probably we'll have to wait until we evolve into a different species, and when that happens, then, of course, the man-centered religion would no longer... Um, matter to us, and we'll dispense with it quite easily at that time, but that's the way beyond my lifetime. Um, but but what, I'm, what I'm saying here is, is something important here, and I think that David Marshall acknowledges that. Um, I don't say that all religions are fundamentally, well, all religions are fundamentally flawed because uh, they all share one uh, one thing, and that's faith, and uh, I, we, that's another topic for another 
uh, program because, no, I don't think that um, you could classify what I think as beliefs. Uh, at least they sh- I shouldn't believe anything, but that's a different uh, uh, topic. But what, what we're agreeing about is that um, we need sufficient evidence for what we think, and uh, that's, uh, that's progress. And I embrace that progress with David Marshall. I'm, I'm glad he came out and said it. Um, because now you can't punt the faith. You can't. Uh, I've, I've met so many people. I'm talking to them about, uh, say, uh, issues of mild atonement or what, what evidence we should expect for the res- resurrection or <clears throat> things like that. And they'll say, well, John, you just got to have faith, as if faith is a virtue. Well, David Marshall, uh, having accepted the um, outsider test for faith, he knows that, no, you can't just do that. You've got to answer the objections. You've got to come up with the evidence. And uh, so at that point, um, you know, we agree, and we agree on that point, and from there, let the debates begin. Sure. Because uh, you, you, can't, you can't just quote the Bible anymore. You can't just say, well, the Bible says, you know, you've got to come up with the evidence, the corroborating evidence. And, and, and but in a sense, if, 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 we, if Christians have ever fallen into that habit, um, it, it wasn't, I don't think, and perhaps you can speak into this, David, there at the beginning. I mean, we, Christianity had to make its case in the marketplace of religions from day one. It, it would, would you agree with that, David? Yes. And when Paul went to Athens, as John just said, he didn't quote the Old Testament. He, he looked at what the Greeks themselves were believing. And he said, as some of your own prophets have said, and he said, uh, the altar to the unknown God. He, he pointed the Greeks to the truth within their own culture. So the first they were saying, hey, what is this babbler talking about? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. And that's what missionaries tend to run into. First of all, language barrier. And secondly, um, the, the foreigner, uh, foreign religion. But because Paul pointed to things within the Greek culture, they, got st- they started thinking and they thought, hey, this is a great discussion. And then it came to the resurrection of Jesus. And they said, hey, wait a minute. Can that really happen? Hmm. So, yeah, at the end, it does come down to evidence. Yeah, uh, indeed. I, I mean, and at that level, you're satisfied that there is enough evidence to to believe in Christianity and, and its claims. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm presently reading Michael Lacona's wonderful book on the resurrection. Uh, it's a masterpiece, and it goes through it very, very carefully, the evidence for the resurrection. I mean, the reality is, though, that the majority of people down the ages who have accepted you know, um, Christianity around the world haven't had Michael Lacona's book in front of them. Um, so, so at some level, inevitably, people have accepted Christianity on more than just obviously um, the you know evidence, because the evidence simply hasn't been available at some level to, to many people in different parts of the world. I, I think that it is in a sense because we inchoately recognize who Jesus is, and, and I, I wrote about this in a book called uh, "Why the Jesus Seminar Can't Find Jesus and Grandma Marshall Could." I believe very often even the experts, they overlook them some, some things that are very vital and, and, and obvious about the Gospels. And there is a probative quality to the Gospels that people often pick up on, even if they're not scholars or, edu- or, or highly educated. But this is when you're treating it, I guess, as more than just a, a, a document. And, and, and at that level, is that when, for you, John, David, does what you, you say Christians do and say you've got to have faith, basically? I, I think that at the bottom line is he's operating from faith. I mean, that's the debate I have to, you know, make, you know, and I'm sure he would, uh, you know, dispute it. But I will say this, even though he has adopted uh, the, the core of the outsider test for faith, uh, the, the book of his here that uh, he's written is, um, I'm going to say it, I mean, it, entirely irrelevant to the, uh, the evidence demanded. Uh, for um, testing one's faith. And uh, I find that even though Randall Rouser has uh, switched sides, apparently, by recommending this book and then disputing uh, what I had written uh, in an earlier program with you, what I find inconsistent, I'd like to have his justification for this, Marshall doesn't even understand the problem. (laughs) David? Well, John, I think um, you're that, that frog in the well who's been talking about the sky when you've only seen a little slice of it from, your, from the well. And what I'm talking about in the book is the sky, the, the bigger picture of the sky. And I'll, I'll let the readers, you know, they can read both the books if they like, and they can come to their own conclusion. But I think that uh, the gospel in these four ways that I described, we only had a chance to talk about two of them today. Um, the gospel passes the outsider tests for faith, a more reasonable version of the outsider tests for faith. 
uh, in, in four very distinct and very powerful ways that really should cause two skeptics who are really searching for truth to sit up and take notice. Mm. Well, what, what I've liked about your approach, David, has been the way you, you do take, take a wide perspective, if you like, on, on the history of Christianity and the way it's worked across cultures and so on. Something that I think sometimes we, 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 we lose a bit when we just focus on, you know, first century events and the evidence for and against. It's, it's interesting to read your, your take on why, in, in a wide perspective, you believe that Christianity has evidence uh, on its side. But uh, in any case, it's been really fascinating to have you both on the programme in the last two weeks. Thanks for joining me, John Loftus. Uh, for, and if you want to find out more about John, uh, Debunking Christianity is the thing to search on Google. And you can find lots of his articles and his books. Uh, his latest one is actually um, kind of taking that further. Christianity is not great, how faith fails. So um, uh, you can read that as well. But uh, David Marshall, uh, the author of... And, and I forgive me if i've been giving this the wrong title david because uh, um is it how jesus passes the outsider test or how christianity passes the outsider test? how jesus passes the outsider test for faith the inside story and the second half of the book is the story not just the argument okay so uh, either way i'm sure um uh, googling that and david will get you there but uh, equally christ the tao.com t-a-o for tao um, blogspot.com yeah. .com and so on anyway links links as ever from unbelievable's website uh, premiercushionradio.com slash unbelievable listen to the latest show uh, send me your comments on it as well there's the ways to get in touch there and uh, and you, you uh, i'm sure that uh, david and john will be interested to hear any follow-up as well in the future uh, in the meantime um john thanks for being with me on the program today thanks for having me it's been an honor and uh, David, thank you as well. It was great talking with both of you. Thank you for listening to this week's classic replay. Do let us know what you thought. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable or tweet us at unbelievable fe. For more resources for exploring faith, head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, and if you register there, you'll unlock access to all the content on the website, and we'll send you updates and exclusive content through the Premier Unbelievable newsletter, including bonus videos and e-books. That's premierunbelievable.com. See you next time for another classic replay of Unbelievable. Unbelievable.